as we come to Psalm 95, I want you to think back. Think back when you were a kid. Because there's probably some of you here today who are really good at pushing buttons. And there's probably some of you who can still push some buttons. Your parents, your grandparents, maybe a guardian, whoever was taking care of you, you knew how to get them buttons. Let me tell you, I was a kid. I knew how to get my parents great proud of. I knew how to argue and complain. And I knew how to throw up. It all because I wanted my own way. I was focused on me, myself, and I. But you know, what I'm thinking about why would you think that? Why do you tend to have that community? Because we have struggles in life. We have hardened hearts. You see, we don't care what our parents, our grandparents, or even the babysitter wants. It's all about what happens. And as we come to Psalm 95, I think it's going to you will see that our own spiritual fathers had this same problem. They too tested God. They tried God. They have hearts that were hardened for the Lord. And so if you look at the imperative in Psalm 95, it's going to say, do not harden your heart. Psalm 95 is going to tell us today that we need to steer away from hard hearts. And what we need to do is believe in Christ and rest in Him. So the one idea, the one thing I want you to take away from today, do not harden your heart. Believe in Christ and rest in Him. So we're going to start in Psalm 95. If you have your Bibles, open it with me. And we're going to start right on to the first few verses. I'm going to take this great through so that we understand where we're heading. You see, the first few verses, verses 1 through 7, give us a context of worshiping to the Lord. Look at the first three verses. It says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. You see, what it's telling us is that worship is First and foremost, worship is shouts of joy. It's shouts of enthusiasm. It's not dull, hushed tones. No! It's exuberant. It's ecstatic. Emboldened. It's happy. It's amazing. Great house sickness now. That's what it should be. The second thing is, worship is in the presence of the Holy God. And with Thanksgiving, you look, we stand before the throne of God. And what we're doing is we're giving back to God what He has given to us already. And we've done a little bit here today. Think about it. In giving the tithes and offerings, you are giving back as a worship to God. Just a moment ago, you just gave depths of the earth, the peaks 
of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. It says, the depths of the earth are in his hand. It reminds you of that old song, he's got the whole world in his hand. Now, kids sing that, and that's great, but you're seeing it in adult form right here. You also see it says the peaks of the mountain are in his grasp. Verse 5 tells us that the seas are part of his expanse. So what that tells us is that everything vertically is his from top to bottom. And then it also tells us everything horizontally is his. He rules all and he has dominion over all. But it's not something where he just took it. He just took it from another God and said, ah, this is mine. No, no, no. He owns it. You see, because he made it. Everything, everything within the earth is his. That Hebrew word there, bishet, that actually means dry ground. That means the very particles of the earth that the earth is made of. He owns it. He made it. And so verses 1 through 5 are telling us who God is. You see, he's greater. He's mightier. He's in control. He owns all and everything. That which is in the earth, on the earth, and what makes the earth. You see, that's the God that we worship. That's the God we give praise to. That's the God we honor. But you see, this God is not just the creator of the material world. Look at verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We kneel before him. We worship, we give thanks, because God made us. Not just the ground and the stuff in it, but he created All of us with purpose. So we worship him because he made everything. We worship him because he controls everything. But we worship him because he made and created us. But you notice it keeps going. It's not that just God made us and moved on. Look at verse 7. He is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He is our God. That means God has become relational for us. There's a person-to-person relationship. There's ownership. There's a covenantal relationship with man in these verses. You see, other gods of the Old Testament, other idols, they would just try to carry out the desires of man. Man would run to them and worship them and plead with them. But there would be no personal attachment and no response. But you see, this God, this God of Psalm 95, he's the God of all creation, Humanity, he is our God, yours and mine. And he has a personal relation with us. And the way it looks is in that second part of verse 7. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. You see, sheep need a pasture. They need a place to go, a place to eat, a place to grow, a place to feel good. And usually that's a pasture, that's a security, that's a comfort, that's a place that they go. But you see, sheep need a guide. Because sheep are sort of dumb when they're on their own. And so they need someone to give them protection. So as people, we are sheep. But as sheep, our pasture is in his hand. So what that tells us is God is our protector, our provider, our leader, and our guide. That's a really relational God, folks. Amen? Amen. Think about it. Some of y'all have kids. Some of y'all will be taking care of them until they're 70. (laughs) You are a guide. And a protector and a provider of that child. We just had a baby boy four months ago. And I'm not there just to feed him, nor is my wife. But I am there to guide him, protect him, and to lead him. It's not the other way around. And so as we read this, we see a God of all creation who is a personal God, who makes you and I, who leads and guides and protects us. That's why we worship him. How could we not? 
And so the psalm is saying that this God, this very God, is available to us today. Because when you look at verse 7 for a minute, some of your Bibles will put periods and commas sometimes when they're not supposed to be. Verse 7 actually runs altogether in the Hebrew text. So what it says, really, is he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if we would hear and obey his voice. The psalmist is saying that this reality is true for us now if we obey his voice, if we hear his voice. Folks, this is for you and I this very hour. And so verses 1 through 7 are setting us up to understand the totality of God, who he is in relation to us. What that means for us is we are to know this God in the same way in our lives. That God is a God of all. He's a personal God who knows us. He's a personal creator who guides and protects and guides us. If we know him, if we hear his voice, our, this God can be our God today. There's just one problem. Verse 8 still exists. Verse 8 is the warning. Because see, in order to have this God be our God, we have to look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. The way that actually translates is, you do not cause your hearts to be hardened. Now, hardened can actually mean to be stiff-necked. We've heard that phrase before. It's the New Testament. Stiff-necked people. That was God's people. But it can also mean to be stubborn. And so what's happening in this verse, in verse 8, is there's a shift being made. You see, God is now talking back to his people, and he's telling us what the problem is. He says, we as people have hardened hearts. We are the ones who are stubborn when it comes to what God says. And my question is, how could we? Such a great God in verses 1 through 7, how could we? Well, verses 8 through 11 explain the problem. Read with me. It says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Guess what, folks? Our history precludes us to this reality. It says that our hearts will go astray. The NIV sometimes retranslates it that way. It happened with those whom God called. Those men at Meribah and at Massa, God's called to loathe that generation, his own people. So if we're going to understand what does hardened hearts actually mean, we need to go to this story and understand it in its fullness. And to do that, we've got to go to Numbers 20. So if you would, turn your Bibles all the way to Numbers 20. And what I want you to do, so I want you just to put right there, because I want to lead up into Numbers 20. I want to explain to you how we got to Numbers 20. So, with your finger just at Numbers 20, go back to chapter 9. And let me walk you through a few chapters of what has gone on. Chapter 9 has been two years since the people have left Egypt. You remember the big Moses Exodus. It's been two years since that time, and so Israel is just about to leave Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments. Then you get into chapter 11. Chapter 11, the people begin to complain to God. It angers God. The first four verses, if you see there, it says the people complain of the adversity in hearing the Lord. And it says the hearts of the people began to be hardened for the first time. Actually, it was so bad. Verse 31, you see that the complaining was so bad, God brought a plague on them. 
just as they're about to eat the quail that was sent from heaven. And then you shift over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is about Miriam and Aaron. Both those people take offense to Moses marrying a Cushite woman. And the Lord actually says there, listen, I call who I call. You see that in verse 6. He says, I've called Moses. I called him because he's faithful. That's in verse 7. So what God is saying is, I choose him. And so it causes Miriam to become leprous because God is so angry. And thus the hearts of the people again become hardened. You look at chapter 13. Moses then sends spies out into the land of Canaan. And he asks them to bring a report back to them. And so they go and they confirm, hey, this is the land of the promise. That's verse 27. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. And so the Lord had promised that he would give such lands to the descendants of Abraham. But when they get there, they notice, oh, those people are strong. I don't think we can take this land. And so they go back and they give a bad report. And so the people stop believing. They don't believe that they will ever get that land that was promised to them. And yet again, the hearts of the people become hardened. You go to chapter 14. Now everybody's in an uproar. The people of Israel would rather be back in Egypt at this point. They complain, they moan, they grumble. And the Lord even pardons them. But he says, verses 20 through 24, these people have tested me and they have not listened And so the hearts of the people are now severely hardened. So what you see here is time and time again, the people of God demand things for themselves. They want it their way. They will test. They will push God. And over time, their hearts become hardened. And you see, they become upset with their situation. And the sin begins to enter into their hearts. Now we get to Numbers 20. And see, what happens between chapters 19 and 20 is almost 38 years pass. 38 years. FYI, in your Bibles, sometimes that happens between chapters. Lots of time can pass. And so what we see is the people's hearts have grown cold. And God is furious. Nobody's listening. And the sons of Israel are finally upset with their current situation. And we get what that situation is in verse 2. Here's the real problem. There's no water. They've been on a trip for almost 40 years, and now there's no water. Now, I want you to think about this. Let's say y'all was going to take a trip up to Bangor, right? You get to about Ellsworth, and you feel a little parched, a little thirsty. You pull off to a shell station, you get a drink. Easy as that, right? This is about a thousand times worse for these people on a 40-year journey. There's no shell station coming up. This is serious business. So read with me, starting in verse 2, the issue. It says that there was no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron, and the people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness? For us and our beasts to die here? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It's no place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to be drank. So the people again are complaining and grumbling. The issue is they have no provisions. Here's the funny thing. The Lord has been providing for them this whole time. Think about it. They've had manna. They've had quail. They've had meat. They have never gone without. But they forget all of that in the start of this story. So the Lord commands. He says, all right, listen, I will I will provide again. Look at verse eight. God says, take the rod. 
And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Now, listen, all that's required is he speaks to the rock. So Moses and all of them, they go before the rock. Now, remember, the Lord just told them what to do. Now read verse 10 with me. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. He said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. First thing you got to notice, water still came out of that rock. God still provided for his people, even though Moses disobeyed. Here's the second thing you got to notice. Moses messed up big time. Instead of speaking, Moses strikes that rock twice. And as readers, we're looking at this and we're going, no, Moses, come on, Moses. How do you get this wrong? It actually reminds me of a time I had when I was riding my bike with my parents. There was an old dirt path behind my elementary school. And so it was open to the public. And so my parents and I, we go down towards that. And there's a big jump at the end of that dirt path. And so my parents looked at me and said, listen, you be careful. Do not go off that jump. So in all my good knowledge, I find an adjacent hill right near the path and I start to get some speed and I start to go down it. And if you've ever gone so fast on a bike, you don't need to pedal to get speed. You just go. That gravity just kicks in. That's how fast I'm going. And the wind's just blowing through my hair and I'm ready to hit this dirt path. So I hit it just right. I hit that jump and I get some good air. Only problem is the bike starts to go back. I'm not a BMX kind of guy. I don't do flips and tricks. So I only got one option at this point. I got to bail on this. And so all of a sudden, I let the thing go, and I land on my back, scrape my shoulder up, bust my shoulder, blood everywhere. And I'm laying there stunned, like, what just happened? And so I pick my bike up, and I begin to walk back. And you ever, you know, have an injury, and you start, things don't hurt that actually were actually hurt. You start limping, and it's only your shoulder. That's what I'm doing. I'm limping back to my parents. And so all of a sudden, I hear those famous words. We told you not to go off the, we told you you would get hurt. And that story reminds me of this story. We can't fathom why Moses would do this. God told you what to do. But you know, folks, we're the exact same way. God will tell us something, maybe on Thursday or Friday, and we'll come in here on Sunday, we'll worship, we get a strong word of confirmation, And Tuesday comes and we're in the same mess that we were asking for help on on Sunday. Folks, we are just like Israel. We're just like Moses. We harden our hearts. And so what does God say that this is looking like? He tells us in verse 12. Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. You see, this is connecting us back to Psalm 95. Hardened hearts have not believed. They do not treat God as holy. They do not listen and they test God again and again. And you notice the consequence. The promise is snatched from Moses. And I always read this and I always wonder why. Why, Moses, would you strike that rock? But you know what I wonder more? God, why would you take the promise away? Because that's what seems so harsh here. 
But the reality is hardened hearts have a major consequence. A hardened heart allows sin to enter in. And guess what? God has to deal justly with sin. So what went wrong here? Well, let me give you three things that went wrong. First thing is Moses didn't obey. He heard God speaking to him directly, but he would rather get it done on his own terms. Folks, that's actually the definition of sin. I know we tend to think it's some behavioral modification. The definition of sin is we want to be our own God and have our own way. And thus Moses, faithful Moses, decided it was going to be on his terms. He didn't obey. Second thing, Moses didn't trust God. You see, God says there's a lack of unbelief. And so Moses, his actions didn't reflect the truth of God in his own heart. He lost faith in God. This is the same God who had chosen him, walked with him, and led him. He didn't take God at his own word. It became like that of the very people he was leading. Let me say it to you this way. Let's pretend I tell you there's going to snow 12 inches tomorrow. It is not, because it could. But let's say I did. And you left here, and you decided, well, you're going to put summer tires on the car. You're going to get your T-shirt and shorts out. You're packing up the snowblower, packing up the skis. You don't need those. Did you actually believe what I said? Did you have faith and trust in what I said? No. Your behavior and your actions did not reflect the truth you had in your own heart. And that's what faith is. It is a behavior and an action that reflects what you believe in your heart. That's whatever that truth is that's settled on the inside of you. So Moses had faith in and of himself. That's the problem. He believed that God wasn't going to come through on his word. He believed that God wouldn't do as he said. Moses' actions reflect a denial of a sovereign God. That's the truth that was in his heart. Here's the third thing. Moses wasn't holy unto God. God can't be in the presence of unholiness. You see, he's a holy God, so he expects holy people. And so disobedience and a lack of trust and unbelief can create an unholy person. And sin can harden our hearts so much, that's the way it stays. And so every time I read this story, I struggle with reading Moses' punishment, but I understand because I know it's from a just God who expects so much more from his people. And if you think about it, Moses is doing this against a great God. Remember the God from Psalm verses 1 through 7? Remember the personal God, our God? The one who guided and walked and talked and led Moses? The God of all creation? That's the God that Moses is staring away from. That's the God he turns from. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, we're the exact same. I'm sorry to say it, but we are the exact same. We harden our hearts and we become unholy before God and it leaves him so angry. Because here's what happens, especially against a holy God. First thing, we harden our hearts because of our lack of disobedience. We try to follow every New Testament rule we come up against. Listen, we will love our neighbors to death. We will follow every Ten Commandments. We got them laminated on our desk. We strive to be the best Christian. But we dishonor God when we think that just doing those things gets us to righteousness in God. We try to take over. We try to make it on our own way. And we leave God completely out of it. That's where our hearts are hardened. Here's another thing. We harden our hearts because of a lack of trust. We forget about the ways God has carried us in our days. 
We grumble. We say God isn't showing up like he used to. Actually, he's not even showing up like I think he should. Now, listen, it's okay to question God. David does that all the time. We praise David for it. But the problem is when we look at God and we say, listen, God, I'd rather be back in Egypt. You know what? I would rather trust me than trust you. Let me give you an example. Think about it. Maybe you have been severely hurt. Maybe an injustice has occurred. Someone's done you wrong. And you can watch as your heart begins to because first you wallow in that pain. And then you focus on how God wronged me and you shake your fist at him. And then you despise the very person that wronged you. That's the same person that God created. And then you start to question, why would God even bring me to this point? Why does he place me in this misery and pain? Or think about it on the other side. Maybe you're coming in here with a loss of a loved one, a child, a parent, a grandparent, a family member. And your hearts can become hardened because you can watch as you can't bear that loss anymore. And you start thinking, God, you've messed up now. And so then you start to despise the very plan that he had for you. You start to question, why should I even trust God? You start to say, listen, you've led me to this place of misery and pain. How am I ever going to trust you again? Now, listen, there's a time to grow. And I think it's important to take that time. But what I'm cautioning is that suffering and pain can bring about a lack of trust in a believer. We can lose sight of God just because of that. And we can feel like, oh, he was there before, but he ain't here now. We can harden our hearts when we come unholy before a holy God. You see, we think that enough church just going to make us super holy. We think that somehow that's going to separate us from those other folks. We think enough daily devotion in our lives is just going to make God hear us a little bit better. And let me tell you, church and daily devotion, they're all great things. I'm not knocking them. But when we think that somehow a combination of those two things is going to make us super holy, we're absolutely wrong. Holiness is not obtained by our own means. We can't think that somehow God doesn't do God because we're not there. Or that things don't happen because, hey, he ain't got me. That's not it at all. Every instance, we come up short. In every way, we ourselves are not enough, no matter what we do and who we are. And so the question I ask is, okay, if miracles from heaven and manna and all this stuff doesn't sway the hearts of the people of Israel, what would? Because, see, we want God to come down in a pillar of fire because then, oh, yeah, we'll trust him. But you know what? Even if he did that, we still might not. You see, the psalm says, do not harden your hearts. But if you and I are not enough in and of ourselves, then what is? This is why Hebrews is so important. Hebrews connects that reality. It establishes exactly what's needed for a hardened heart. It is to believe in Christ and rest in him. And I want to explain to you what that is. Go back to Psalm 95 for a second. Jump all the way back to Psalm 95 and look at the first verse with me. It says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You see, God has given us a rock. And Hebrews reminds us what that rock is. It's Christ. He is greater than all of us. Those who believe in Christ, yes, they enter into his rest, into a security of his salvation. So then what are we to believe? What should be the truth that's deep down on the inside of our hearts that will help us steer clear 
from hardened hearts? Well, the first thing is we got to believe who God is. Remember, our actions should reflect Psalm verses, Psalm 95 verses 1 through 7. Make him a personal God in your life. You need to have a relationship with him. That means we need to communicate with him, pray with him, talk with him, back and forth with God. That means we need to listen to God, hear his voice through his word and through his spirit. And that means we need to follow God, walk in his ways exactly as he wills, not our own agenda. And we got to love the ways of God. And we need to believe that even in our loss and even in our pain, that this God will still guide us, protect us, and he cares about us. That's the first thing. But then we need to believe in Christ. You see, God has provided a way into his presence. And it's not merit-based, folks. You see, through Christ, we can stand right in God's sight. Hebrews actually points us to that. And it mentions, it says he is the only way to God. It's not through Moses, and it's not through angels, and we can't work our way to it. And so we are called to believe in the gospel of Christ. Now, what is the gospel of Christ? Because trust me, we could stay in here. I'd give you 65 different definitions from all of us. But I heard a pastor say something. I just want to share it with you because I think it, it helped me so much. Get on the inside. What is the gospel of Christ? Turn to, turn to Romans chapter 9. I know you're jumping all over the Bible today. <laughs> go to Romans chapter 9 and go to verse 30. And I think this sets up beautifully. What is the gospel of Christ? And I'll explain it to you. Romans 9, verse 30, let me read it. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, verse 31. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, verse 33, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Look at that first part. I lay in Zion. Folks, God is the author of the redeeming plan. He sent his son. He's arranged a way into his presence. That's the first reality. But then that Christ, that stone of stumbling, Christ is the son of God. Christ is God, divine. And he's the only way into the presence of a holy God. But here's the thing. The rock of offense is the fact that Christ had to go to the cross. The cross becomes such a stumbling stone to us because it reminds us we got sin. And the cross is so difficult because that means we have a debt on our ledger and it's got to be paid. But you understand the cross is so vital because it's at the cross where that debt is paid. And so now you can stand holy and righteous before God. And then look at that last part. He who believes in him will not be disappointed because through Christ and the cross, there is grace. Despite all of the sin you have, there is a personal God of the Psalms who cares for you, but one who has pardoned your sin in Christ. And he gives favor on you where it was not deserved. And so those who believe in that Savior find authentic salvation. Folks, that's what we believe. That's what we preach and teach. That's what we live out in faith. Every action that we do on this planet, on this earth of our lives, that should be we take into account reflecting, knowing God that way, knowing Christ died for my sin, 
knowing my sin is dealt with on the cross, and then coming to the Father in authentic righteousness. That's the gospel. Thank you. Yes. So do not harden your heart today, but believe in Christ Jesus. Folks, do not harden your hearts today. Believe in a true and authentic God. Do not harden your hearts today. You need to live out and believe in a Savior in Christ Jesus. So as I close, that's all well and good. But some of you might be saying, well, why do I need to believe? Well, here's the thing. The last half of that is there's a rest in him. You see, if we believe in Christ, we will find rest in him. Psalm 95, 11 said that the people of God never found that rest. But see, today you can. You and I both can. Because here's the reality. Maybe you came in here with some sort of financial debt, financial issues. Maybe you came in here with empty hearts. Maybe you do have a loss you're dealing with. Maybe you just got kids that are testing you. But despite all of that, you can find rest in him. Because, see, Christ is the one who obeyed. He took the cup on your behalf. He went to the cross. And, folks, let me tell you, he did not harden his heart. And he's now glorified above Moses. So if we are to dwell in Christ, if we live and walk with him, you can and will find rest. So, folks, do not harden your hearts today, but find rest of assurance in salvation. Know that your sin is covered, that you're spared the wrath of God, and that he does not loathe you this day. You can rest knowing that God cares for you and he provides you eternal salvation. Do not harden your hearts today. Find rest in the presence of God. You need to know that there's no need to work for it anymore. There's no need to have a mediator to go on your behalf. Folks, you can rest in the authentic presence of a holy God. Because you can rest knowing that your worship is worthy because you're in Christ Jesus. And you can rest knowing that your prayers go to a living God and that he hears you. But the most important thing is don't harden your hearts today because you can rest in the promise of God. You see, the promise of God to Moses was that he would get settled land that was going to be given to him. He would cease wandering. But Moses doesn't get that. But you and I. We get to rest in the promises of God today. The reality is that God will be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. That's a promise. We can rest knowing that God is going to guide you in the redeeming work he has for you. That he will continue what he started. That you don't have to keep wandering. You can rest in knowing your inheritance in salvation. And that you worship a mighty God. And most importantly, I think, you can rest knowing in the promise and the reality that God has called you into a place that you're at right now and that he will walk with you and work with you and that he will come through on his word. That he has not forgotten you this day or any day forth. Amen? Amen. Do not harden your hearts, but believe in Christ and rest in him. Folks, it is not necessary to keep hardening your hearts, especially as we come to the table. But believe in Christ and rest in him. Let me pray as we close. Oh, Heavenly Father, I get so excited to bring your word. And it's not because I'm some great preacher. It's because you are the great I am. And I get to bow before you and tell people about your greatness and how great you are. And that they can find a rest when they feel like they've been wandering for so long because they can rest in you, Father. 
We thank you for all that you've given to us today. We come before you now, especially as we take your body, as we take the cup, as we remember what that means. Father, you have done all the work. Now we need to come before you and say, I want to believe and rest in your name. So, Father, thank you so much. Be with those who continue to have hardened hearts. Let them know that they do not need to do so any longer because you are here. You live today and you reign forever. We thank you for this and we ask this in your great and precious name. Amen.